Grab your Bible, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, what I just read. That's our passage this morning. So we continue studying this life and death series. We're looking at the gospel of Luke to see the life that Jesus lived, the death that Jesus died, which makes him the only savior of the world. That's what we're doing, okay? Luke chapter 13, verse 1. You need the scripture in your hand. You can open your liturgy. It's there. If you want the Bible, the text, we have a friend, Victor, who would get you one. If you raise your hand, he would bring you one. He'd put it in your, and even open it to Luke 13 for you so you can follow along. Let's look at God's word together. Let's be serious students of the text here. Verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him. Okay, students of the word. What are some questions we should ask before we begin? Come on. How about, who are the some, right? Are you interested? Who are these people? How about, what very time? Isn't that a good question to ask? What's going on? The lectionary throws us in the middle of a passage again, and so we have to ask these questions. How about the hymn? Let's start there. We'll warm up. Who is the hymn? Jesus. That's right. This is the gospel of Luke. It's the story of Jesus, his life lived, and the death that he died, even the resurrection. The story of Jesus. Remember, he is the prophet king. Come into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God, but also to fulfill the kingdom of God. To bring the kingdom of God. This is Jesus. We talked about that a little bit last week. How he is both prophet and prophecy fulfiller. Wonderful. And gathered around Jesus are some people. Gathered around him are some people. Children, use your imagination. Imagine a group of people gathered around Jesus, and Jesus is sitting, and they're all listening intently. They want to know what's going on. So who are these some people? Go back to chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. Remember, Jesus is making a journey. He began that journey in chapter 9, verse 51. Chapter 9, 51, that's such an important verse in the Gospel of Luke, where he begins a journey to where? Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. You might say he has set his face to the cross. That's where he's going. He knows that. And on his way, he's teaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And here in chapter 11, he really has some strong words for the Pharisees. In verse 42, that's where I'm looking at. Chapter 11, verse 42. Look what Jesus says. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. They love to feel like they're important. Okay? Verse 44. Woe to you, if you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. He tells them, you're dead and you don't even know it. Woe to you, Pharisees. Remember, the, we talked about the Pharisees last week. These are teachers of the law. 
they believed that we could live out the law and so be righteous before God. But what the Pharisees forgot is their hearts. My heart, your heart is sick with sin. We need a savior. We are dead in our sin. The Pharisees, they're dead in their sin. They don't even know it. They need a savior. And so Jesus basically, look at the end of the, verse 53. Look down at verse 53. Uh, he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him and something he might say. Let's see if we can put something on this prophet. Let's see if we can catch him in some kind of lie or something we don't like. Let's listen in. Let's wait and catch him. Well, what does Jesus do? Woe to you, Pharisees. And then he sees them like following and listening. Is he afraid to speak? Look at the very next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, as these Pharisees are after him, when so many thousands of people gathered... Can you imagine? Thousands of people have heard of this prophet and they've come and Jesus is going to teach them. He's going to proclaim the kingdom to them. They gather around and the closest to him are his disciples. And he begins teaching. Who do you think is in the crowd listening? The Pharisees are there. In fact, at the very end, this starts a teaching time that goes all the way to Genesis 13, 31 to 35. What we studied last week. For some reason, the lectionary has to study the end of the sermon before the middle of, before the beginning. I don't understand that. But at the very end, who challenges Jesus at the end of the sermon? The Pharisees. And so they're listening in the whole time. And Jesus has challenged them. They need to repent. And that brings us to chapter 13, verse 1. In the middle, we're in the middle of this sermon that Jesus is giving, this teaching time. Really quickly, I'm going to set this. I have been setting the stage. I'm going to continue to set the stage. This is important because, like I said, we're in the middle of the sermon. I don't understand. We need to know the whole thing. So here's what's going on. Verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus tells the people, you better get ready. There is an end time eschatological judgment coming when God will put his wrath on all sin and all sinners and you will be judged. And guess what? That moment is going to come when it's least expected. Like the thief in the night. Can you plan for a thief in the night? If you could, they'd be a terrible thief. But the thief is coming in the middle of the night. Get ready for the judgment. And then Jesus, in, the, in verse, it's verse 49, he t- t- points to himself and he says, I am dividing people. I'm a divider. That's what Jesus says. Division. And based on your response to me, the prophet, in your midst, you will be divided. And one group will be ready for the judgment. One group will not be ready for the judgment. And then he says, in verse 54, he begins to challenge the people, you think you can predict the weather. You feel the wind blowing and you say, oh, it's going to rain today. We never say that. Um, Or you feel the wind blowing and you say, it's going to be hot today. We do say that. That's exactly what Jesus says. He challenges them. You think you know the weather, but you're missing something way more important 
I'm sitting here in your midst. This is a critical time for you to get ready for God's return, his final judgment. Get ready. And then he says, in verse 57 and following, he says, it's like you're walking towards the judge. And you owe the judge a debt. You will be condemned. But walking right alongside you is someone who can wipe away the debt. What are you going to do? Read chapter 12 today. If you would like. And that gets us back to these some people. They're sitting in this crowd. They're listening to Jesus' judgment proclamation, wondering, okay, it's a critical time to get ready. And here's what they told him. Look, they told him, verse 1, we're back, okay? About the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is obscure. Some Galileans, they'd come down from Galilee. Galilee's up here. If, I'm a, if the map's here and you can't see it, but it's here. Galilee's up here. Jerusalem's down here. It turns out Jesus is from Galilee, and so are most of his disciples. But there's a time when some Galileans, they come down to Jerusalem to make sacrifice, probably a Passover in a year past or something like this. And while they're making a sacrifice, literally while the blood of the animal is flowing, Pilate, the governor of Rome, a governor from Rome in Jerusalem, had them executed. In fact, it happened at such a time that their blood, the blood of the sacrificers, mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. This is the only reference to this in antiquity, the only time we ever read about this. No other historian writes about this, but the word of God inspired by the spirit, it, it teaches us true historical moments. And there's this heinous historical event when worshipers are murdered in the act of worship. Why did the people bring this up to Jesus at this moment? Why take all, everything Jesus has said, they're taking it in and then they say, what about the time Pilate murdered the Galileans? Remember what Jesus has been talking about? Judgment is coming. Judgment against sin is going to burst out into the world. There's an urgency to discern the time. And so what the people do is they say, okay, Jesus, help us interpret this moment. Tell us what this signifies about the time that we live in. Remember when Pilate killed the Galileans. They want his interpretation. And the crowds were specifically wondering, here listen, they're wondering if the sin of the Galileans is the reason they were murdered or executed. It's almost like they're saying, they're curious, were these men or, or these women, did, had they done something wrong that displeased God? And so they were unworthy to make a sacrifice. And so while they're making the sacrifice, God worked through Pilate and, and had them executed. That would have been a common perception or understanding of misfortune in the first century. The Jewish people, they thought misfortune came because a, a direct result of a specific sin. Does that make sense? They must have done something terrible for God to judge them in this way. 
That's kind of what they're asking. We know this. Look at John chapter 9 at some point. The Pharisees say, hey, this guy's blind. Is it because of his sin or his mom's sin or like his cousin's sin? They're wondering what caused this misfortune. And look how Jesus responds. We know this is what they're thinking because in verse 2, Jesus answered them. He puts his finger on their thinking when he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see, Jesus gets to the issue. He asks rhetorically, you really think they were worse sinners? What's the answer to that question? No. It's a rhetorical question that demands the answer, no. In the sin department, these Poor victims who were murdered, they were no worse off than any other Galileans. Equally guilty before God. It's a tragedy that they were murdered in this way. Jesus doesn't comment on the tragedy. And they're thinking, they're being oppressed by Rome. Who gave Pilate the right to come into the temple and murder God's people? Who gives Pilate the right to murder an Israelite? That's right, but the, the Caesar does, you're correct. But the Israelites are wondering, he's a Gentile. What business does he have in our temple? If you're the prophet king, are you finally going to remove Rome from Jerusalem? Are you going to finally deal with this situation that we're facing did you hear what Pilate is doing? Did you hear what Romans doing to his people? But Jesus doesn't comment on any of that. Instead, he says, essentially, this didn't happen because of a specific sin committed by a specific individual. This happened because sin is universal. Sin is universal. Sin is everywhere. It's in everyone. All people, the Galileans in the temple, the Galileans in Galilee, even Pilate, yes, all are sinful, guilty of sinning against God. And so what does Jesus do when he's asked to interpret the sign? He turns directly to the people listening. And he says, this is a wake-up call for you. Sin is act, the act of turning from God. It's worshiping anything that is not God. It's rebelling against God's will in moral ways. It's loving anything more than you love God and your love leads your life. When the world chose sin in Adam in Genesis 3, God's wrath against sin began to fall. And it is falling. And it continues to fall until that last moment, that judgment that Jesus has talked about previously, Romans 1, 18, the Apostle Paul, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. A world, listen, a world without sin is a world without suffering. Doesn't that sound nice? A world without sin is a world without suffering. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve enjoyed uninterrupted, blessed life and fellowship with God. Sin was foreign to them. They were unacquainted with sin and therefore they were unacquainted with grief and sorrow and shame and death. 
But when Adam chose sin, when he came to know sin and rebelled against God, he came to know grief and sorrow and shame and, and sin was unleashed into the world. They were evicted from their home, Adam and Eve. Their son murdered their other son. They died. They bore the, the punishment of sin. A world with sin is a world with suffering and tragedy. And Jesus explains here that suffering cannot be a barometer for sin because all are sinful and therefore all experience suffering. Does that make sense? If you said no, I don't know <laughs> what I would have said. Sin, suffering cannot be a barometer of sin because brothers and sisters, do you not experience suffering? We know what suffering is like because we live in a world where sin has been let loose. Jesus says, no, they weren't. They weren't worse off. Verse three, I tell you they weren't, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He turns it to them. The people are considering the situation that had transpired in the temple and are wondering if judgment for sin had fallen on these Galileans. And Jesus says, this isn't a sign of judgment against their individual sin. This is just a sign of God's judgment falling on the world because all of the world, even you, is lost in sin. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, you will perish also unless you repent. Death brings us face to face with God Almighty. The Holy One that we're all guilty of sinning against, turning away from. Jesus has told the people they're living in a critical time. Verses 54 and following in chapter 12. We're living in a critical time when we can be made right with God. There's someone walking alongside you who can help you prepare for that day. And so he says, repent. Let's talk about repentance. The doctrine of repentance. If you take notes, listen. Repentance is a holistic movement of turning toward God. Repentance is a holistic movement of turning towards God. I use the word holistic for several reasons. One, because it involves the whole person. Okay? It's holistic in that sense. I say holistic because biblically speaking, repentance begins down here. In the gut, in the heart, when you feel sorry for committing crimes against God. And you feel regret and remorse. This happens by the Spirit's ministry. But when you are struck, we might say convicted, I'm a sinner. If you want, go to Psalm chapter 32. I'm going to, Psalm chapter 32. David, King David is lamenting his sin. And he says in verse 3, this is Psalm 32, verse 3. Many of you know this psalm very well. David says, for when I kept silent, when I knew my sin in me, but I didn't let it out, when I didn't talk about it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In his sin he just felt... He's wasting away. 
broken. Ah, oh, he just feels the weight of his sin. Jesus talks about this gut-wrenching feeling that sin causes. When we come to repentance in Luke chapter 10, verse 13, when he talks about sitting on sack, in sackcloth and ashes, this sign that you feel sorry. So brothers and sisters, repentance begins here. I'm sorry I sinned. Repentance is holistic because it moves from that feeling, like oh, I feel bad for myself because I did this, and it moves up to confession. It's holistic because it moves up and out to confession. God, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. Look back at Psalm 32. That's exactly what David does. Verse 6, or I think verse 5. There we go. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He confesses to God. Psalm 51, David says in verse 3, against you and only you have I sinned, right? He confesses. It moves up to confession. Repentance is this feeling that leads to acknowledgement, owning of the sin, confessing the sin. Finally, repentance is holistic because it goes from inward sorrow to outward confession, finally, to a changed life. The Greek word that's most often translated repent, it simply means to change or turn, to turn around. You've heard that, right? To change your mind, your direction, your behavior, your attitude, your life. Repentance is turning from what was to what is now. It says, I was going the way of sin and death. Now I want to go the way of God. That's repentance. David in Psalm 32 verse 8, he talks about this when he says, now that I've confessed, I know that you will instruct me and teach me in the way that I should go. You're going to counsel me and set my eyes to the right path. So David has this resolve to go the right way. I hope looking at David's repentance helps you understand this holistic movement. What Sam Storms, he calls it a heart reformation. Your heart is totally reformed in repentance. Because you're sorry for what you've done. You confess to God what you have done. And the grief that you have felt because of sin, it leads you a different way. Okay? Repentance. Much more to say on that, but critical here for Luke 13 is this question. Listen, who should repent? Dave, he raised his hand. <laughs> Amen, brother. Jesus takes this moment of these Galileans to look to the crowd and say, everyone needs to repent. And the Pharisees who are waiting off in the distance, you too. And his disciples sitting at his feet, you need to repent. We're all guilty of sinning against God. Everyone must repent, for we are going to encounter God Almighty and we owe him an insurmountable debt. And his wrath is going to be put on sinners and sin forever. Jesus says, Wake up. That time is coming. Repent. Friends, have you ever looked at another person's terrible situation and thought, he got what was coming? She deserved it. 
This happens to me when I'm on the highway, like 347 maybe, and someone flies past me, you know, doing 100. And then like five miles later, they're pulled over. And I think, justice. They got what they deserved. It's true. But this should be a wake-up call, this tragedy that struck. Death is but a moment away. Repent. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help us to repent. This is the way into the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Jesus has a, a, a tragedy of his own. All right, you want to talk about interpreting the times? How about this? Verse 4, are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? This would have been in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus is trying to help the people discern and interpret the time. Judgment is surely coming. It will happen at an unexpected moment, like a tower falling on you. And just like the previous tragedy, Jesus is saying, he says in verse 5, no. It didn't happen because they were worse offenders than anybody else. The tower fell because the world is lost in sin. Sin is loose in God's creation. Men and women have turned from God and fellowship with God has been broken. Paradise has been lost. We know we don't live in paradise. Towers fall on people. Apartments by the ocean collapse. Accidents happen. Tornadoes destroy cities and states. Hurricanes break levees. Hearts cease to work. Death runs rampant in the world. One moment you're sitting with your family having dinner, talking about how crazy housing is in Maricopa, and the next moment you have your daughter turned upside down, trying to get a piece of food out of her throat. She can continue to live. Did that happen to my daughter, that tragedy where I was dialing 911 because of a specific sin or because sin is let loose in the world? The Jerusalemites were no worse off than anyone else. Verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The world is broken because the world, collectively, without God's gracious intervention, moves away from God. So the first question Jesus answered, who needs to repent? Everyone. When do I need to repent? Now. The time is now. Turn from sin. Move towards God. A tower could fall at any moment. And suddenly, you are face to face with God Almighty. And so friends, I want to ask you, how do Jesus' words to the thousands in Luke 13, to his disciples in Luke 13, how do they cut through history and into our lives, into our hearts, and shape us, God's holy word, shaping his people today? First, three quick encouragements, okay? Do you have time? Three quick encouragements. First, avoid the danger of repentance neglect. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't need to repent. Maybe my son does. Or maybe he does or she, but me, you know, I've done that. 
I can dispense with that practice. I want to tell you, as kindly as possible, you're in a dangerous place. The crowd looked on the Galileans as if they got the wrath they deserved. Jesus looked at the Galileans and said to the crowd, you better recognize, everyone needs to repent. The Pharisees who were after Jesus, they rejected repentance. Let us not be like the Pharisees. Let's avoid neglecting the practice of repentance. Let's not grow complacent in sin. It's written into our daily office, morning and evening, repentance. We come before the table, we repent. We are people of repentance. Do you guys ever heard of Martin Luther? The, not King, but the other one, the OG, the original Martin Luther, 1500s theologian, a professor, Augustinian professor. You know, he led something, Reformation, right? Well, Martin Luther, he looked at the church and he realized the church had been teaching, we earn our way to the kingdom of God. By this law we follow, at the time they called it the sacraments. If you follow these laws, then you're made right with God and you stay right with God. And Luther said, that's not what the Bible says. Scripture says, faith alone saves. We need to repent of our law breaking and he nailed 95 theses to a door. And you guys remember this from history? Their statements, they declare what Luther thought was wrong, according to scripture. Do you know what the very first one he said was? The very first one he wrote. He said, quote, number one, this sparked a reformation. Or it lit it on, I guess it, it blew up, a reformation. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the first one. You see, Luther knew salvation wasn't found in man's ability to achieve the law, but in man's humble contrition to confess, I have failed to keep the law. Let's not neglect repentance. Second encouragement, embrace repentance now. There's an urgency, brothers and sisters. There's an urgency for you and for your children and for your neighbors and for this city to know judgment is a real thing. It's coming. Repent. This is the way into the kingdom of God. Third encouragement. Know the one who calls you to repent. Hold on, bud. Know the one who calls you to repent. I presented repentance earlier, presented repentance earlier as a holistic movement towards God. It's holistic because it moves from feeling to confession to changed life. But listen, it's more. Repentance is holistic because if you leave with anything this morning, repentance is relational. You can say sorry all you want for your sins. But just this act of saying sorry, it doesn't, Remove the guilt. It doesn't make it as if you never sinned. It doesn't, as Psalm 103 says, take your sins and put them behind God as far as east from the west. No, it's just saying, sorry, you're still a guilty sinner. I'm still a guilty sinner. You can make a choice to avoid a particular sinful struggle in your life and maybe even have progress, but you're still a guilty sinner. I'm still a guilty sinner. Because listen, repentance is not a law. 
It's not something that replaces the Decalogue. Okay, now I repent, and since I, check, I'm saved. Repentance becomes a law when, when you repent and you think God owes you something, or you repent, you keep going in sin thinking you have this thing called repentance, so I'll sin, and then I'll repent, and I'll be all good, because it's a check, I'll be safe. Does that make sense? But repentance is not a law. Repentance is relational. It must be rooted in relationship with the one who can actually take your sins away. Who can see that you are sorry. Who can hear, he can hear your confession. And he can reach in and grab every sin and nail it to a cross. Jesus, the man sitting in the crowd, was able He was the one who could actually prepare sinners who are perishing to encounter God Almighty. Jesus lived without the need of repentance. He never turned from the law of God. He never rebelled. He was filled with the Spirit. As we learned three weeks ago, two weeks ago, Luke 4, Jesus defeated the devil. He never needed to bend the knee and say, Most merciful God, I confess I've sinned against you. Jesus does not need to say that. He is unacquainted with sin. And yet... He became acquainted with your sin. God made him your sin, even though he knew no sin, so that your repentance would be efficacious. So that when you come to him and you say, God, I am sorry, God says, okay, my son, his blood forgives you. Repentance is always relational. You have to know Jesus. You have to come to Jesus. And then we're made ready for that final day. And even now, we're made ready to walk before God. In the power of Jesus, in the spirit that he gives, in the righteous, his righteousness that flows through us, we are actually made able to walk a different path. To say no to sin and yes to God because we, the one who can make us right with God, he walks in and with you and before you and after you. That's repentance.